we often talk about climate change from the perspective of 2080 or 2100 or the polar bear up in the Arctic, when we can certainly talk about it from the standpoint of how much you're paying for Cheerios, why someone in Florida may have uh, a tropical disease that didn't exist in this country, or the fact that parts of Georgia now are considering uh, growing orange trees, <laughs> whereas it used to be down in Florida. So I think when we can sort of frame things in a way that people understand, you can help, help slay the misinformation. But we're always up against the challenge of what Upton Sinclair said, which is that it's difficult to get a man or a woman to understand uh, something when their salary depends on them not understanding it. That very clear statement by Upton Sinclair defined why we've had challenges with articulating climate science and why there have been some that want to misinform on it. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at KathySullivanExplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to KathySullivanExplores.com. Looking back at your childhood, did you have books, games, or hobbies that now seem like early glimmers of your life's path? My urge to understand how things work and my interest in foreign languages were both quite clear by the time I was five. My guest today, weather expert Dr. Marshall Shepard, latched onto the subject that would guide his life when he was about 12 years old. He planned to do his sixth grade science project on bees until a nearly fatal bee sting revealed that he was extremely allergic to them. So he chose weather instead. As any kid might do who ever played the game, what does that cloud remind you of? Marshall did his undergraduate studies at Florida State University, becoming the first African-American to earn a degree in meteorology. He then joined NASA, working on various research satellites, while also working towards his PhD in meteorology. Today, he directs the Atmospheric Sciences Program at the University of Georgia. We'll explore Marshall's path through life and also get his take on the three biases in understanding science that we wrestle with, the intersection of science, academia, and social relevance, and what he calls climate zombies. Wonder what those are. Dr. Marshall Shepard, my good friend, it is such a delight to have you join me on the podcast. Thank you. Oh, you know, I'm happy to be here, Kathy. I definitely had to return the favor because uh, you're one of our favorite guests on the Weather Geeks podcast as well. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, I've, I've got so many oddball pathways in my life to consider myself a weather geek is a real <laughs> honor. So <laughs> we're happy to have you. Thanks. But you and I have never really had a good chance to sit down and just talk about the path through life that we've taken. So I know your professional 
career and standing a bit. But let's go back to the start. Tell me you know, where and when you were born and what was it like when you grew up and who was Marshall Shepard when he was five or 10? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. I grew up in a little small town called Canton, Georgia. It's about 40 miles north of Atlanta. Now, if you come to Canton, Georgia now, it looks like suburbia. But when I was growing up there, I was born there in the local hospital to my mom. I mean, I guess you know, I was raised by a single mother who was a teacher. Uh, in fact, she was my fourth grade teacher. And I've got stories about how horrifying that is to be taught by your mother. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, my parents, uh, you know, she, she left my dad. You know, she was living in Florida, teaching down there and moved back home to Georgia. And I was born there you know, close-knit family, you know, low to um, middle-income uh, African-American community, uh, very sort of small African-American community at that time. Um, there were literally three places within that city where you could find a population of African-American community. One was called Stumptown, one was called 19, and one was called Pea Ridge. And I grew up in the Pea Ridge 19 community, and had a good upbringing. Uh, I'm, I'm an only child, but I spent a good bit of time growing up around cousins and playing with them. But uh, I have some only child isms in that I, you know, I can, I'm very okay with doing things on my own and exploring things in the yard. And I think that really uh, set up a lot of how I ended up becoming a scientist. Interesting. And you said close-knit family, and you mentioned cousins. Were any of your grandparents nearby? Tell me a little more about that. And how big was Canton at the time? And when you talk about these neighborhoods, give us a sense of the scale. Yeah, it's a really, it was a really small rural community, essentially at that time, to give you a sense that basically the social activity of teens in high school was riding around in a circle in the McDonald's parking lot and parking <laughs> and hanging out. And I eventually got a Hardee's, which I worked at uh, while I was in high school. I bought my first car uh, or helped buy my first car with my Hardee's paycheck, uh, flipping burgers and actually making biscuits. In fact, an interesting story, uh, I was probably 15 or 16 and they called me in at 4 a.m. in the morning to on the morning shift to make the biscuits. And my mom was like, oh, that's it. You're not going in at 4 a.m. to make biscuits. You got to find another job. But yeah, my, my grandparents are around. In fact, at, at some point, you know, I remember us moving back home my mother moved back home to take care of her ailing mom who, who had cancer. And so essentially for the latter part of my middle school to high school career, I grew up in the home that my mom grew up in. I, I had an uncle that was around and I, my grandfather was really pioneering at the time. He was a former, worked at Lockheed Martin, uh, but then he also was one of the few African-Americans at the time. Keep in mind, this is the 70s. Uh, he had a, a Texaco station. He actually had a business. And I used, I, I remember growing up there, my mom was a teacher. So after school, sometimes I'd go there to the Texaco station with my grandma and be there just kind of hanging out as she worked there. And I, I just remember a lot of the older men sitting around drinking Coca-Cola and putting peanuts in the Coca-Cola bottle. That was, that's a thing in the South and eating sardines on crackers. And I used to say, God, that looks really gross. So I never tried it. But those are memories and images that I have in this little town. Some other time we'll have to talk more about peanuts and Coke bottles. That just mystifies me. <laughs> You're the only scientist I know who 
chose the scientific field he went down because he was allergic to a different one. And I gather this happened in like sixth grade. What's that story? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting story. Really a little bit before sixth grade to set that context up. I, I mentioned that I grew up doing a lot of things on my, I used to love just walking around in the woods and going down to creeks and looking at minnows and crawfish and crawdads as we call them and things like that. But I also enjoyed catching insects in the yard. I used to catch bees and ants and put them in jars with grass, just watch them. And so one day I got stung by a honeybee and almost died. I was, you know, I, I didn't know at that time that I was highly allergic to bee stings. And this was before everyone carried EpiPens. So I had to go to the hospital and, you know, I don't know whatever they did, but I, I didn't, I'm still here. So the sixth grade science project was coming around and I was planning to do something on bees and I needed a plan B. <laughs> given that my Then you discovered that could be fatal. <laughs> absolutely. So I plan B pun intended. And so I was always interested in weather as well. Uh, and so I just made little weather instruments from things that I had around the house, anemometers, hair hygrometers, barometers, and so forth, and started taking measurements. It's developed a little model for my, my little community. And so did my science project that was actually called Can a Sixth Grader Predict the Weather? And I won the local science fair, went on to the district science fair. And so from that point on, was bitten by the weather bug, I guess. Yeah, very, very cool. So how common was it for kids who were growing up around to go on to college or for that matter to win the science fair? Was science a, I mean, what was the mindset towards education in your community? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think I had pr probably more of a, an education mindset because my mom was a teacher, but I, I'd say that many people in my family did not go off to college. My mother did, but the vast majority of my family and people in that community, just sort of average working class people, uh, that, you know, finished high school, maybe had some college, but for the most part, it was not a community that was driven by inherent expectation almost that you're going off to college in the same way that my kids, they've just grown around, grown up in a house with a, yeah. a mother and a father that, you know, that's all they know is, oh, you went to college, you went to grad school. I, that, that wasn't necessarily my mar marinated, as you will. Yeah, did anybody give you grief about that? Or was it a social issue to be, have that aspiration? Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, it's an interesting question, Kathy, because I don't think so. But I mean, my, my mom and I often talked about how at times, you know, you, you always wonder if there was, you know, people that sort of resented the fact that you didn't have certain opportunities, perhaps. I mean, there, there were wins of that. And I, I talked to my kids about this, you know, because, you know, I was, a, you know, did well in school. And, you know, I, I had some successes, even I was, you know, valedictorian in my high school and those types of things. And, you know, I, I probably took some ribbing and joking as a kid growing up because I was studious and did science fairs. That, that actually even wasn't my most successful science fair. I actually went on to the state science fair with a project I did in eighth grade on uh, hypertension in, in African-American versus other races. But, I, you know, I, I, I think I did take, take some ribbing and teasing, but I, I guess one of the only childisms that I mentioned is that because I was an only child, I really never felt the need for, for affirmation from others. I just kind of did my thing. And so the, it never really bothered me and so forth. And so I, I think that kind of was an insulator and armor for that that I experienced. Now, I don't want to overinflate that. I, I didn't have a negative experience and I don't know that I felt bullied or anything, but I, I do know that there were these little tinges and sort of yeah. that I saw from time to time. Yeah, I mean, I can remember, I think it was fifth or sixth grade because I kind of like you, I like to read, I was curious, interested, and I would enjoy in class if there was a question, I'd, oh yeah, I'll, you know, I'll try. There was a day that I can almost picture explicitly in my mind's eye where I shot my hand up in the air to eagerly answer a question. And I kind of 
looked around me and realized that not only was the whole rest of the class silent, but they were like staring daggers at me. And I realized, ooh, it's actually not necessarily a good thing to show that you are interested in all these answers. The stubborn kid that I was, I carried on, well, then I'll just answer them to myself silently and the heck with you guys. But <laughs> No, it's an interesting thing. We, you know, I have an 18 year old and a 14 year old now. We have these similar conversations because more so, I think, even than when I was growing up or when you were growing up, I, I, I see some of the latent pressures and of, of the, the social expectations that they are dealing with. That they're both good students. They're, they're both very successful. And, you know, we've had conversations with them about not downplaying your intelligence or trying to be something else because you're trying to sort of fit in. And I, I think we've gotten through to them, but um, that, that's a real thing. And it's, I think, even more so now. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't give in to the be cool thing. Yeah. So you were living in Georgia and raised there and you ended up at Florida State. What was it about Florida State that attracted you? Because I suspect it wasn't football. It wasn't, although that's what people always ask me. They're like, oh, did you go to Florida State because they had a good football team? No, I didn't. I, I like football, but that's not that was certainly not my uh, driving decision. The reality is, you know, after I did that science project, I, I kind of knew that I wanted to be a meteorologist. I mean, I was bitten by the weather bug, as I noted earlier, and I, but I didn't want to be a weather forecaster. I didn't want to be on TV. Uh, I was more interested in the hows and whys of weather. And so I started researching then, sixth and seventh grade, who had good meteorology departments or atmospheric sciences departments. Now, at the time here in Georgia, and this, again, is the mid to late 80s, really, I graduated in high school in 87. The University of Georgia, which I'm now the director of their program, did not have that at all. And Georgia Tech only had a graduate program in earth and atmosphere sciences. They did not have an undergraduate program. So the closest place that was really a top tier program was Florida. And wasn't viable. Nearby, really nearby, wasn't viable. No, no. And Florida State was four and a half hours from Atlanta. But it turned out it was at that time probably considered one of the top five, top six meteorology programs in the nation. Still very good, but at that time it was extremely well regarded. And so it was just kind of a natural sort of place to go because I I, I knew and I told my kids, I only applied to two schools, as I recall, I, I believe. Hmm. And I, or I applied to Florida State because I knew I wanted to go there and Brown University just to sh uh, show myself I could get in an Ivy League school. Because Brown is no powerhouse in meteorology. No, they don't. <laughs> Although th these days, my good friend Amanda Lynch is up there and they do have some climate. But at, at, but at that time, they, they did not. <laughs> what kind of picture did you have in your mind's eye at that point about what, since not television was clear, what being a meteorologist would mean? Well, you'll, you'll appreciate this, given your, your trajectory. I said in my high school valedictory address that I wanted to work for NASA one day. Woo, there you I, go. I, I actually mentioned that as a high school, 17-year-old high school senior standing there in my high school stadium giving my valedictory address. Now, I didn't know what that mean or how it was going to happen. And I said it at that point and then kind of tabled it for the moment until I got the degree. And so, you know, went on to Florida State, you know, did, did normal things. I pledged my fraternity Alpha Phi Alpha there and just did normal things. But, you know, meteorology is very math, physics based, you know, here's yeah. a fluid. So I had to really buckle down to get through that program. And then I decided to go on uh, and do a master's degree because I had an opportunity as an undergraduate to do research with the National Weather Service there in Florida and just enjoyed that process and stayed on to do a master's degree, actually with some of the first ever Doppler, the next rep 
rad data. That was yeah. around the time that the next rad Doppler radars were coming online. And my advisor at the time had some of the first data because he had a grant with Unisys. And so that's that really kind of got me into the research side of the house. And so I, I didn't I knew I wanted to do research. But I, at that time, Kathy, most people that majored in meteorology were going to be on TV or they were going to go work for the National Weather Service. Whereas now when I, I see all the different places that my own students from the University of Georgia go work, Delta Airlines or, you know, commodities yeah. yeah. companies or so forth. It's just a whole different world. But at that time, it was limited. It was either those two or maybe a government agency if you could get a, a graduate degree. But at that time, I just wanted to get a master's degree and leave. I was tired of school. <laughs> I wanted to go like, you know, you know, meet my soulmate and buy a car and just do those things. And that's actually what I did. I actually left after my master's degree uh, because my advisor called up Franco and Audi, who I, I think, you know, and Joanne Simpson. But, but our listeners may not know. I mean, Franco yeah. and Audi is one of the preeminent names in meteorology. So is Joanne Simpson. Yeah, and and he he to my my advisor's credit, and this is importance of people at good mentors. He called up Franco and said, "Look, I have this guy that has a dream of working at NASA one day, uh, and he's really sharp. Would you talk to him?" And so Franco brought me up, and Joanne, I talked met all of Joanne. Brought you up to DC. Uh, yeah, brought me up to Maryland. Yeah, okay. with NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. He brought me up. I interviewed after my master. And, I, and by the way, this is I have to give a shout out to the American Meteorological Society because I had they have something called the AMS Industry Fellowships. I was in the first cohort of those, so that's how I was able to pay for my master's degree. And so after that, I went went to and Franco said, "Well, he, I remember he he walked out of the room after we were talking to me. He didn't tell me why, but he just got up and walked out of the room. He later told me." that he walked out and he said he was so impressed. He went to a secretary said, we've got to find a way to hire this guy. But there was a hiring freeze. So I couldn't get into the government. So I went to work for a small company that was a contractor there at Goddard. And that's kind of how I got my foot in the door at Goddard. Uh, but eventually then got hired on as a civil servant. Franklin said, I'm going to find a way to hire you. And then ultimately went back to Florida State on one of these programs. And I'm sure you're familiar with where feds can go back to school. And that's how I got my PhD back. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Because you, except for that little break, it's not common to rocket right through three degrees in a row. Often people take a long time to work and, you know, make the extra money or whatever it might be, start get the rest of their life started and then realize they want that, they want or they need that next academic step. Well, I realized that Franco, well, there are two things, actually. One, I realized that in a place like NASA, you're not going to have the type of career advancement that you want you know, without your doctor, I mean, every, you know, everyone around there were doctor, PhD, this and that, and sort of senior scientists and project scientists and so forth. But then the I other mean, thing is- Certainly at Goddard, it's not, you know, in the engineering side of NASA, it's a little different, but the research side, that's very true. That's a great point. Yeah, yeah, you can do very well at Goddard on the engineering side. Uh, yeah, but on the sort of PI-driven science side, you definitely- yeah, the principal investigator side. Exactly. And so, and the Franco was like, I have this expectation that you're going to get your PhD if I bring you on as well. And so, you know, those two things. And, you know, it was a no brainer for me. I was single at the time. Goddard had this program where, and, and it wasn't just a Goddard program. I think it was across NASA and maybe even the federal government, where if you apply and got accepted, you could go back to the school of your choice for two years, do your doctoral coursework, take your preliminary exams or comprehensive exams, and then you had to come back and try to find time to finish your, your dissertation, but you owed NASA one three years for every year they paid for of school. So that was six years. 
I'm like, I'm not ever leaving NASA. This is great. And so I was <laughs> so like, you, oh. did your, you found your research project for your PhD back at Goddard with Franco and company. Yeah. yeah I, the, the work that my, my research was very much tied into, and that's part okay. of the expectation of the program. That research was tied into the mission. I was involved with the tropical rainfall measuring mission trim, which Joanne Simpson, uh, the right. project scientist at the time. And so uh, my research was very much anchored in supporting that mission. So you had to have a really mission focused dissertation topic. Interesting. Yeah. I, I want to back up just a little bit to when you started college. I'm curious, given as mathematics and intense as weather is really, if you're if you're trying to understand it and create the models that let the rest of us have all that helpful information on our cell phones, that's highly intensive math. I'm curious how well your secondary schooling prepared you for that or whether you kind of found yourself on your rear end and had to dig deep and figure it out, which, as you know, is what happened to me when I hit the change to sciences. Oh, yeah, no, it's, you know, it's a great question, because, um, again, I grew up in Cherokee County school system, which at that time, there was nothing exotic or fancy about the school system at all. I mean, I, people would probably look at it and like, well, how, boy, how, you know, there's nothing special about that school system at all. Uh, but I do, I did feel adequately prepared. I mean, I, this was just around the time that AP or advanced placement courses are starting to emerge. Okay. So I remember taking AP calculus and so okay. forth. So, I mean, it, again, it was a low rural, I mean, it was a sort of a lower to middle income community that I grew up in, but I, I can't say that I, it was a poor school system. I, I, I just, you know, I, I, I live in Gwinnett County now here in Atlanta, which is a really amazing school, public school system. But again, I guess my school system that I grew up in would pale in comparison to the experiences that my current kids have, but I did feel adequately prepared. Now, having said that, it was still really hard. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I ended up getting to Florida State, and I, boy, Calc 2, Calc 3, partial differential equations, some of those things were really tough, and so I, I had to really buckle down just because the material is so hard, but I, I even warned my kids to this day. I never kind of went in there saying, I'm, I'm not good at math. I mean, you, I knew that I kind of had to be if I was going to be a scientist or engineer, and so I just kind of buckle down. I mean, it's logical. I think logically and just kind of it's one of those things I tell my my, my daughter who does OK in math, but probably she, she would say she's not as good as math as I am. But I said, don't ever sort of handicap yourself or or, or, or suggest that you are. You know, there's no sort of bad math gene. I mean, I mean, you, you can you can work at it and get better. <laughs> Yeah, if you look at it as a mu just like you would in sports, a muscle I can strengthen. Yes. So, Marshall, I, I really want to ask you this question, but you're welcome to tell me it's a I shouldn't or it's impolite or even shut off your video. But one more question about your school system that you grew up in. You know, it's pretty common in schools these days, and I think it probably was when I was in high school and you too. Lots of teachers would look at either girls in the math class or African-Americans in the math class and come at them with presumptions about what you could or couldn't do. And I'm curious about whether your teachers in high school were, was there an integrated school and you had a combination African-American white teachers? I mean, did you have any of that coming at you in high school? Yeah, you know, it was definitely an integrated school, but I, I want to be clear very few African-Americans in that school uh, of my graduating class of probably 300 or so, maybe there were probably seven or eight African-Americans in that graduating class. So it was still a, a majority white community mm -hmm. at that yeah. time. And I, I do feel like there was support for me among the team. And part of that, Kathy, maybe because my mother was a teacher, so she was in the school system and some people knew her and so forth. But 
I, I do think that there were times where there were certain teachers or people that sort of felt your ceiling was a little lower than I saw my ceiling being. So again, I think it just came from that just kind of forging through because I had, I, I, I did have goals even then. And so I just kind of forged through. I didn't let things hinder me in, in that regard. But I, I, I you know, my experience, I, I know for a fact that that went on because again, there were other African-American students around me that did not have the same trajectory that I had and had, did not have the same support system that I had. And were very much a part of that sort of a priori assumption about who people are just because of yeah. what, they, what you're what, capable of just because the way you look. Yeah. yeah, and what, what side of the track you came from in Canton, so. It probably didn't hurt that you came in with a regional and a state science fair prize, but that would yeah. be a little bit of a moniker. Sure, sure. So you did a stint at Goddard, as you said, a pretty long one, as it turned out. It ended up being about, what, a dozen years or something? Twelve years, yeah. I got, like, like I said, got there in 93, working with a little company called SSAI but then got hired by NASA Goddard and working primarily in the trim group with the people like Joanne Simpson and Bob Adler and Jerry Himesfield. Dave Atlas was there at the time. These are all, if you know the weather community, the research yeah. site, these are all you know, top tier marquee names. Yeah. But break down into some simple English for us. Tropical rainfall mapping mission. I mean, this is a satellite whizzing around the planet. Satellites don't have water sensors. So what does... <laughs> What does this satellite actually do? I mean, how do you get rainfall from space? Yeah, if you're listening, I'm going to give you a little example here from, from Kathy's podcast. Go put a piece of ice in your microwave oven. Turn that microwave on. See what happens to the ice. Probably nothing for a while. But go get a bowl of water and put it in your microwave and turn your microwave on. What's going to happen to the bowl of water? It's going to start boiling eventually. Now, if you take that ice cube and put it in a pan and put it in your regular oven and turn it on 450, that ice cube is going to melt. But remember in the microwave, see what happens to it? Really nothing. That's a very basic principle in terms of how ice and water interact with microwave energy. So water absorbs microwave energy. Ice scatters or reflects it away. And right, we so that means the ice repels it like a down jacket repels the cold. Exactly. And that's why it's so hard to defrost things that are frozen, by the way, in a microwave. Um, so we use those very basic principles of how water and ice react or interact and to put these instruments on a satellite, including a radar, just like the weather radar you might pull up on your phone. And so we were able to put, you know, a radar on this satellite and also some other types of instruments that can sense the energy coming from raindrops or ice in these big thunderstorms around the globe. And so using those techniques, we could measure essentially, quote unquote, rainfall from space. And the reason we started in the tropics, it's called a tropical rainfall measure mission, is that not only did we want to know the rainfall, but we wanted to know how much energy is being released in all these clouds in the tropics, because Joanne's hot tower theory is that it's that energy that literally was helping drive the broader circulations that cause our weather, no matter where you live. So that's that's where it got started. We ultimately ended up expanding it to the globe with something called the Global Precipitation Measurement Mission, or GPM, which I ended up becoming the deputy project scientist for. Cool. I always remind people that satellites don't actually measure any of the things that you're, that you're told are being measured by satellite. They just measure light. Yeah, exactly. That's why I said quote unquote, because yeah. exactly right. You just you're, measure you're, radiance. Yeah. yeah. But smart people like Marshall Shepard have figured out how to do the math to turn that radiance into an actual physical thing that we care about called, oh, rainfall. Right. And, 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 and then even other smart people that do more modeling type things take those radiances 
and put them into our forecast models. And that's why you hear this conversation that you well know as the former head of NOAA about the American model versus the GFS, the American model versus the European model, which one's better? Well, they're both really good, um, but they have different ways that they take that satellite data and bring it into those models. Yeah, fascinating stuff. What drew you away from Goddard after a dozen years? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I always thought I'd retire at NASA. I mean, it's who leaves NASA, right? Well, we both did, I guess, at some point. But Two of us. Uh, two of us. There's two yeah, of us. Two of us do. But, you know, really, it, it was a great time. And I loved it. And like I said, I... I still, like I said, was a can kid in a candy store because I was basically getting, getting paid to do really big science projects, which is how I started my interest in science. But I was getting paid a really good salary to do really big science projects with fancy technology and engineers and some of the most famous scientists in my field. But an opportunity presented itself. I was at an AGU conference, the American Geophysical Union Conference out in San Francisco. Just this mega gathering of like typically 5,000 people. I mean, it's a it's a gathering place and clearinghouse for kind of anybody whose work touches any part of earth sciences. Yeah, absolutely. And I was out there giving some ta talks on some of the work that I was doing at that time on how urban environments affected pre precipitation and flooding. And a colleague at the University of Georgia was in the session and we just kind of struck up a conversation and whatnot. But then, you know, I get back to Goddard and an email, of, you know, maybe a month or two later said, hey, you know, we had a climate scientist in our program here at the University of Georgia you know, retire and we probably are going to have a new faculty line that we're going to be able to replace with another climate expert. Would you be interested? And I kind of hem and hawed about it at the time when my wife was working in the DC area with a consulting firm out in Fairfax, Virginia. She's a housing and community development professional. You know, the strains and stresses of that she was commuting to one side of DC, I was going to another side. We had a, our daughter was probably 15 months old at that time. So we sat down and talked about it. I was like, yeah, you know, that's an opportunity because she's from Atlanta area. I'm from Atlanta area. It's home. And so I came down to give a guest lecture, what we call a seminar, which is very typical in the academic world. That's yeah, the step one of the hiring process. Yeah, but still not necessarily in my mind convinced I wanted to leave NASA, but I did at least come down and give the seminar. But then one thing led to another and, you know, I decided to come. And they had a really fledgling atmospheric sciences program at the time. It was just getting started, really. And I could sort of see that, that there were some opportunities there to really grow that. And that's what we've done. So that's kind of how I ended up leaving. Very cool. Well, let's shift gears a little bit and sort of talk a little more about the intersection of science and our society. Someone said about you that you redefine the intersection of academia, science, and social relevance. Do you agree with that? Does it strike you as something you're aspiring to do? And tell us, what would you mean by that sentence? Yeah, it's it's interesting because I don't think that I'm I'm setting out to do that. And I mean, I, you know, I'm honored that someone would say that about me. It kind of comes back to the lens of my marinade of my where I grew up, you know, and I talk about that, this marinade oftentimes and things that I write. I do really complex science, but the people that I grew up around. I could not talk to them about it in the way that I talk about it at that AGU conference or the AMS. I want my cousins or the people that I grew up with to understand why it's important to measure rainfall from space or understand uh, whether a hurricane might re-intensify when it moves over a wetland. I want them to be able to understand it. But then beyond that, I know, given that it was a primarily African-American community with some marginalized and uh, parts of that community, weather and climate impacts their lives. The, their, the things that they're buying at the grocery store, 
or the fuel they're putting in their cars or their the diseases that their kids may be exposed to all are affected by things that I know about and study. And so I've just always used the lens of common sense to sort of try to convey the science that I do, because in the academic world that I operate in, you know, peer-reviewed publications and books and conference proceedings are important. Those are the currency of academia. Um, but the currency of life and society is why is what am I what I'm doing important? Why does it matter? How can it help us moving forward? That's that's just kind of always been the lens that I've come from. So that that's really shaped my science. And, you know, I've had enough success in my career. Now I'm at a point where uh, I can actually focus on both. I, I, I mean, I'm not just kind of focused on one one path or the other. I can kind of navigate in both spaces. Interesting. And another thing you've talked about that I haven't found anything to read and study up on in advance is the three biases in understanding science. What are those? Yeah, well, I, you know, I talked about that on a recent TED talk, um, and I talked about this, these biases that shape how people view science. And it, as you well know, as we've lived through the COVID pandemic and still living through it, as we sort of grapple with the idea of climate change and the climate crisis, People have these biases. I mean, there are these biases shaped by their sort of how they grew up politically, geographically, culturally, racially. So you have these sort of what I call marinade biases. Then you have these cognitive biases. You know, I, I, I always joke that people actually, and this is not a joke, it actually really does happen. People come up to me all the time and ask me about the groundhog forecast, and it's all good fun. But then one of those same people actually denies the existence of climate change. So they'll, 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 they sort of want my opinions on a, a rodent's forecast, but then sort of dismiss sort of peer reviewed science on climate. And so those are, you know, these various cognitive biases are out there. But the, and then the other is really not so much of a bias, it's just this idea of what we call Dunning Kruger effect, this idea that people sort of because of social media and Wikipedia and Google, uh, believe that their research, I did my own research, um, you know, matters as much as, you know, five years of a study or, you know, you know, in-depth analysis that scientists do. And so these are some of the challenges that we face in the discourse on science today. And it, 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 it's, it's quite alarming in many ways, because I think it's affecting society. You literally have people that, you know, aren't getting vaccines or, or won't, won't uh, leave uh, a vaccine if we're telling you a cat five hurricanes coming or a cat three that may intensify overnight because of rapid intensification, um, you know, th these are challenges that are affecting our decision making. I wrote out the last one. This one will be okay. Yeah, it's got yeah, the, what, what we call the um, normalcy bias. So, right. you, know, I, you know, Hurricane Harvey, I talked to someone and they said, well, yeah, we get floods all the time in Houston. I didn't think it was going to be that bad. I said, yeah, but you don't get a storm that produces 50 inches of rain in a few, four days. Those are anomaly events, and we are in an anomaly climate system now. Yeah. How do you think that will affect the training, development, even recruitment of the, of the next generation of scientists? I mean, America is a technological society, an innovation-powered economy, it's always aspire to be. Where are we going to get those talents? You know, it's an interesting thing. And I, I, I you know, being at a university, I, I see uh, some things that are of concern. I, I, I see students that often will avoid the STEM majors because they fear 
that they're too difficult. And we have these you know, incentive-based scholarships. We have an amazing scholarship program here in the state of Georgia called the Hope Scholarship Program and the Zell Miller Scholarship Program. So if you have a certain GPA coming out of high school, you can go to Georgia Tech or the University of Georgia basically for free. But the catch there is you've got to maintain a certain GPA. And so uh, over the years, I've seen you know the, the pressures to keep that scholarship versus, well, I don't know, that, that civil engineering or that, that engineering degree might be a little hard. Maybe I'll kind of avoid that. Uh, I think there have been some things put in place here in our state to kind of mitigate that some. So, you know, I, I, I am a little concerned, particularly as it relates to, you know, you know, African-American um, marginalized community communities of color. And I and I'm trying to I almost said it myself. I almost said minority communities, but I wrote something in Forbes where I'm trying to kind of get rid of the use of that term minority in STEM, because I think it in its way, almost a, a little bit of a microaggression because it sort of connotes that there's less than even though it's really just talking about numbers. Um, but I think that I'm seeing less people and students from those groups going into the STEM fields. And that's a particular concern to me as well, particularly as our workforce diversifies in the United States and globally. Uh, so I, I do have some concerns because if you go and look at any Google, any list of the top jobs for the next 25 years, the next century, they're all STEM based. Not, not to say that we will not need other jobs that aren't STEM-based, but uh, we, we are going to need a STEM-enabled and STEM-focused workforce, and there are some challenges there. Well, an increasing number of jobs that aren't on the surface STEM jobs, you know, meteorologist or oceanographer, really nowadays are, they're of a caliber and of a challenge level that the habits of mind, the mental discipline and you know, logical reasoning to a point you touched on, the ability to critically assess the value of three pieces of evidence, which one should I give more weight to than another? You know, I mean, that's important in finance, that's important in business, that's important in all, even in roles in healthcare or NASA that are not overtly the science roles, those are really pretty critical skills to have. And we need a lot of those people. Yeah, well, yeah. And one of the things that we're seeing in the landscape that I operate in now, even in a weather and climate related department, big data, analytics, artificial intelligence, machine learning. These are things that our students need that skill set as much as they need to understand the dynamics of the atmosphere. And so many of our students actually don't even go off. They graduate and don't go into meteorology or climate. They're, they're working in consulting firms or business firms and so forth that just need their analytical skills. I mean, because you end up getting basically a math minor or you end up taking courses that require you to work with data and make decisions. And so, you know, that's one of the things, the big things that I've seen evolve in from when I was a student, these degrees that you have, these STEM-related degrees, I mean, they prepare you for many different things that you can do in society. Yeah, they're really global passports. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I was in grad school, there's a PhD, finished his degrees with us on a postdoc, and he'd done, I forget exactly what, in biology, but in kind of classical biology, but with population dynamics. So he had had to do a lot of computer this is long enough ago, there were not off-the-shelf programs to use. He had to do some programs and he had to punch cards. It was really laborious. He had done all that. And his value to our department was actually, he was the only guy that could really master the computer and all of the mechanics, because it was all, I mean, it was still mainframes. You'd walk to another building, but it was all so new. Even the professors even needed to be trained. And he made his whole career really being on the computer side rather than the biology side. Biology was his gateway into computing skills that powered the whole rest of his career. 
Yeah, absolutely. I just had a conversation with one of my grad students the other day, and he's doing some machine learning analysis of lightning uh, around urban spaces. And I said, look, this skill set that you've developed to do your master's thesis is going to carry over whether you end up in this field or not. I mean, I remember my master's thesis I mean, I, I, I developed a genetic algorithm code to track hurricanes. I didn't know anything about genetic algorithms, but genetic algorithms is a form of neural network and, you know, machine learning now. And, you know, so these things have carried over. Now, I'm at a point in my career where I'm, I'm not in the weeds of coding and doing those types of things anymore, but certainly can pass along suggestions to my students that I advise. You've touched on your writing and the, you write for Forbes. And you're also on television as the weather geek where you and I first did our first podcast together. Mm -hmm. But you write on other topics as well. And you've, in the last year or so, put out two books, one with your wife about the pandemic and your experiences, and one about um, the race awakening of 2020. What would you share with our, my listeners as the highlights from each of those? Like, let's start with COVID and yeah. families, <laughs> observations and experiences in the pandemic. Yeah, it's just interesting because, you know, you're sitting around the house as we're all locked down in COVID and you just, you know, you've, you've got a lot of time. And my wife started posting something daily about our experiences on her Facebook page. And so as I started looking at what she was posting, there was something very different today about, you know, a walk that we went on or the challenges of ordering groceries through Instacart or whatnot. And I said, there's some real things, lessons in that, that I think we could share just broadly about our experience. And so I took her daily Facebook posts and sort of built on each one each day with an inspiration or a lesson or maybe something about science or, or about, you know, the, the family dynamic that I could share. And we captured that in a book called 40 Days, 40 Nights, uh, you know, Experiences of a Suburban Family in Quarantine. And, you know, it actually did pretty well for, but we self-published it. I self-published both books. I, you know, I've written books before from my scholarly standpoint or code chapters in books. But, you know, because you're sitting around with a lot of time on your hand, I did the research on how to self-publish through Amazon and figured it out. And so it became a nice little gem, just sort of family. It, 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 and one of the things I liked about it was just I enjoyed just doing working on it with my wife. I mean, it's just, you know, we've never collaborated on something like that. And now she's a published author. So oh, that's a fun pandemic project. Yeah, yeah. And how about the awakenings? Yeah, well, the, the race awakening of 2020, I'm a six-step guy for moving forward. I just, I woke up, Kathy, one day feeling helpless after George Floyd. Uh, I think everyone remembered what happened with George Floyd in, in, in Minneapolis and the horrific nature of his death. And, you know, while everyone internalized it, and I think no anyone that saw that, no matter what your race or your background was, you saw how horrific it was, it really... In turn, it hit for me because I'm an African American male and I have a 14 year old son. I've been a NASA Goddard scientist driving up Route One in Maryland and pulled over by the police in a rental car, NASA issued rental car, and told by the police that I matched the description of car thieves in the area. I experienced that. I, I've stood in a hotel at the AMS as the president of the AMS with four other colleagues in suits, and three women walked up to me and asked me if I was the airport shuttle driver. And so I, I have these kind of experiences. I, I tell my child, when you come out of a convenience store, don't run, walk, because I don't want anybody to perceive that you've stolen something. So there are these little life lessons that we all have because of our different experiences. And so, you know, people are asking me from different races and cultures, how can I help? What can I do? And so one Sunday morning, literally, I woke up, 
came to my office downstairs in the house and wrote a little handbook, about a 70 page handbook. And with concrete things that people, we all can do to kind of move the needle forward on race relations and, and make people comfortable talking about them and not feel uncomfortable or confrontational about it. Yeah, I, I found it really helpful because, you know, you're a good friend and some other close African-American friends, Charlie Bolden, who, you know, I've Absolutely. Seen with twice. And, you know, I, on one level, I know how completely different your experiences have been. And on another level, I don't even know how to put a question. It's not your job to educate me and make me better, but I don't know how to put a question even to a friend that would be a mutually interesting, worthwhile exchange and not come across as an inadvertent insult or worse. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, and I think that's the case. I think, I think, I mean, I, you know, one of the things that I value in friendships like yours and, and, and so forth is I have a very wide net. And, I, and that's one of the things that, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to give the commencement address at Florida State and the University of Georgia in my career. And in one of those talks, I said, you know, the area of a circle is pi r squared. I said, when you increase the radius r, you increase the area of the circle. I said, we all need to have increased social and personal radius of the experience. Because when we have very narrow or small radii, we have less of an area of experience. And so the more people we can have in our circles, the more experiences we can have in our circles, the more travels and exposures, I think it creates a level of understanding and, and it will get us in society to where we probably want to be. And so that, that's why I encourage our, my, my kids and to travel and experience new things. And you can still have friends and, and, and associates that you disagree with and still be friends with and interact with, you know. And so I, I, I've valued that over the years. To use your marinade metaphor, if you've got too small a radius, you're marinating in a pretty stagnant pool. That is correct. Yeah, that's right. It's a very stagnant, it becomes oversaturated in some regards. Well, since you've given commencement addresses, I know you've got, you've codified some words of advice. And so we're coming close to time here. Let's close with maybe the wisest three things you would say to young or early career people mm -hmm. about life, the universe, or anything. Yeah, I, I I think one is expand your radius. That's something that I'm very significant, uh, a very significant sort of mantra for me, expand your radius. The other thing that I would say, and it kind of goes back to my TED talk on biases, take a personal inventory of your own biases. Don't accept that you don't have them because we all do have them. I, I, I encourage people to take an assessment and an inventory of your own biases, then try to understand what shaped those biases. I think that's important. And when you start to understand that, uh, it might give you some insight into places where those biases are hampering you or in some way or, or, or making your purview on the world uh, a bit too narrow. And then the other thing that I still say is, you know, to people of all levels of their careers is continue to set goals, set a bar for yourself. I mean, I, I used to write things down as a, as a kid. I want to go to Florida State and get a meteorology degree. I want to work for NASA. Don't just sort of write those goals and leave them sort of languishing. Uh, develop an action plan you know, for how to, how to, how to achieve those goals. And then when you achieve those, you know, it's not a stagnant process, you know, right, reset, the next ones. Reset. Yeah. So those are, those are sort of th three things that I've, I've lived by, but then there's one other thing that just from a humanity standpoint that I, two things that just 
climate change is the cri one of the crises of our time. We have to activate on that. We need an Operation Warp Speed, Apollo level, Panama Canal level, Manhattan Project level response on climate change now. Uh, because it's unlike the pandemic, which I think will kind of kind of wane at some point, we're talking about global impacts, death, economic impact, and fatality, so forth, for perhaps decades to generations because of climate change. So, And then the final sort of piece of advice just comes from one of my favorite singing groups. It's an 80s English group called Depeche Mode. And they had a simple song. <laughs> no, really, Depeche Mode? <laughs> yeah, I love them. They're, they're my favorite. I, anytime they tour, I'm there. But they had a simple little song in 19, I think, 84 called People Are People. And if you listen to the lyrics of that song, it's like, people are people, so why should it be that you and I should get along so awfully? That resonates in 84. It's the thumb right on it. Day. Yeah. Yeah. So since you came back to climate, one other question from me. Another piece you've written for your TEDx talk, I guess it was, was slaying the climate zombies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So who are the climate zombies? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was thinking about that because I think a lot of people and perhaps some of your listeners watch that show, The Walking Dead. And, you know, zombies have been really popular in the last decade or so. But, you know, I'm, on, I'm active on Twitter and I'm active in spaces where people always bring up these science theories or beliefs they had about have about climate change that have long been refuted by us as, as scientists, but that they keep live on and they should, you know, reappear in social media or in some editorial or on some television network. And so I just started calling them zombie theories. You know, these things like, oh, it hasn't warmed since 1998, or, oh, it's the sun that's causing climate change, or it's really not that bad. You know, there are hundreds of them. You can go to various websites like skepticalscience.com or realclimate.org, and there are call zombie theories. That's what I call them. But uh, there are these things that we hear all the time. It's climate scientists that we've long refuted, and they actually have answers for on those websites. And so how do we slay them? You know, you know, in, in, in that in that talk, I talked about just upping uh, climate literacy. Uh, you know, I think, you know, but I, you know, I've, my opinions changed on that a little bit in the last decade. I mean, I, I used to think that the problem with climate, the challenges we were having with climate communication, were just that people didn't understand it, so we just need to hit them over the head with make understanding climate literacy. I still think that's important, but I don't think that's all of the problem. I I, I think we also have to sort of make people understand and bring climate science into their kitchen table lives, those kitchen table issues. You know, we, 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 we often talk about climate change from the perspective of 2080 or 2100 or the polar bear up in the Arctic, when we can certainly talk about it from the standpoint of how much you're paying for Cheerios or, or why, why someone in Florida may have a, a tropical disease that didn't exist in this country, or the fact that parts of Georgia now are considering uh, growing orange trees, <laughs> whereas it used to be down in Florida. So I think when we can sort of frame things in a way that people understand, you can help, help slay the misinformation. But we're always up against the challenge of what Upton Sinclair said, which is that it's difficult to get a man or a woman to understand uh, something when their salary depends on them not understanding it. That very clear statement by Upton Sinclair defined why we've had challenges with articulating climate science and why there have been some that want to misinform on it. Very true. And someone said to me the other day, I don't know where they got this line from, but it struck me as spot on that it used to be, you have to see it to believe it. And in our era, it has become, you have to believe it to see it. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's really, that's a really powerful statement. 
Yeah. You know, that's why I always push back when someone comes up to me and says, do you believe in climate change? I said, science isn't a belief system. I, that's like asking me, do I believe in gravity? You know, if I jump off my house, I'm going to fall. And so, and you, you of all people know all about gravity, uh, having sort of left the influence of it on, from the planet. But, you know, this idea that it, there's a belief system, but yeah, you do have sort of people that are shaping their entire science understanding and narrative based on, a, on their belief systems and their ideologies and their, the tribalism that they come from. Well, Marshall, I know you and I could go on for hours more and uh, maybe Absolutely. maybe the AGU or the AMS meetings will start up again here in the near future and, and we can find some time at one of those to do it. Knock on wood. I hope they do, because I am uh, as much as I understand why we've had to do it. I'm not a big fan of these virtual meetings. <laughs> not at all. But I'm a huge fan of this conversation and I Absolutely. know my listeners will enjoy it. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Kathy. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com.